today is one of those days, if you've been in Berean Baptist Church very long, you know that we've changed the arrangement of the auditorium somewhat by putting a center aisle and also moving this front row back somewhat. And this is one of those days where I'm very thankful that we moved the back row back a little bit. Makes it harder for you to get to me. Um, So some of the things I have to say today, uh, although they're needed, they might be some things that you don't like. So I'm glad that you can't reach out and touch me this morning by sitting here on the front row. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to 2 Peter chapter 1. Towards the back of your Old Testament and find 2 Peter chapter 1. A few weeks ago, I heard a story about a little old lady who went to a Christian bookstore, and she bought one of those bumper stickers that said, Honk if you love Jesus. She'd just come from a church service, and she was really feeling good that day about what she'd heard in church. There was a great sermon. Special music was wonderful. The congregational singing was great. So after church, she went into the bookstore to the, isn't that odd, Christian bookstore being open on Sunday, but I think they might even do that around here. But she went to the Christian bookstore on the Sunday afternoon, and she went in, and she saw this bumper sticker that said, Honk if you love Jesus. She was thinking about that church service, and so she thought that she would buy that bumper sticker. So she put it on her, took it outside and put it on her car and then left to drive home. Well, as she was driving home, she stopped at a very busy intersection. And she was still thinking about how great a day it was at church and all things that happened there. And as she was sitting there, the light turned green at this very busy intersection. And she sat there for about 10 seconds or longer, not realizing that the light had turned. Everybody started honking their horns. And that little old lady just leaned out the window and said, I didn't realize so many people loved Jesus. Well, all of us know that when you drive a car, that there are certain things that you have to do to keep it up. No matter how new it is or no matter how old it is, there are some items that you just have to do when you own a car. You have to put gas into the car, of course. You have to put oil into it. You have to maintain the brakes and take care of the tires. And if you don't do that, then you'll break down someday in a busy intersection. You'll be stranded there. And the very same thing is true in your Christian life. You might be a brand new convert to Christianity, or you might be someone who's been saved for many, many years, and yet there are some maintenance items of the Christian life that have to be taken care of. Now, today we're going to study a few verses from the first chapter of Second Peter. And Peter speaks here about maintenance for a virtuous Christian life. I want you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We're looking at 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to begin reading with verse number 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we notice, first of all, that Peter is writing to Christians. These are people that are in the faith. They have received the righteousness of Christ. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, 
and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Both Peter and Paul agree that God chose us before we chose him, and then God calls all that he's chosen. Today we're going to talk about the virtues of our call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you give. Just a wonderful day to contemplate Thanksgiving. We thank you for our country. We thank you for the opportunity to even stand here in freedom and proclaim your word. Lord, we pray that you might help us to be an ever-thankful people. And Lord, as we talk about this subject today, as we talk about the virtues of the call, help us to maintain our Christian lives correctly as you would have us to, that we might be a witness for you in this world. Bless in this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Both Peter and Paul were apostles of Jesus Christ, and they agreed perfectly in all principles of the faith. Both of them taught that we're saved because God has called us, that God is the one who initiates that call, and they also both taught that God has called us to live a holy life. Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he was rehearsing how he had taught them how to live. And he said, I exhorted you and charged every one of you that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. So Paul and Peter both agree that salvation is something that God calls us to, and then God calls us to holy living. Now, for the past three weeks, we've been talking about God's call. Mainly, we've been talking about the call of salvation. Then we talked about the call of service. We've talked about witnessing. And this week, I want to talk to you about the virtuous life, the call to live a virtuous life. And this is what we call our sanctification. Now, sanctification is one of those theological terms that many people don't understand. They have problems with theological terms. So I don't want you to have a problem today. So I'll put it to you very simply. Our sanctification is the holiness of our lives. It's how you live your life as a person who's different from what you were before. Now I want you to notice first today that there is the divinity of our calling. This is a calling that's been given to us by God. It's truly a divine call. And if you haven't already been struck by the importance of this call, then just consider who it is that has actually called you. Now, before, you weren't saved. You didn't know anything about God. You weren't too concerned about these things that we call sins. And that's because you had no relationship with Jesus Christ. You didn't understand him. But then one day, God called. The Holy Spirit came to you, and he opened up your heart with the gospel of Christ And then Jesus Christ entered into your heart. The Holy Spirit opened up the door of your understanding because you had no comprehension of who God is. You had no personal relationship with him. And so this was something that you could not do on your own. God had to be the one who called. Now, so that tells us then that it's God who gives power for spiritual life. God is the one who calls us to life. And that's because all people without Christ are spiritually dead. 
And before anybody can be spiritually alive, and before they can understand spiritual things, God must come to them and give them that life. And that life comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's faith in that gospel. Now, Peter says in verse number 3, According as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life. Now, it's true that there is no person who has physical life without God, but this is not what Peter's speaking of here. He's speaking about our spiritual life, and there is no one who has spiritual life without God. God gives us spiritual, eternal life. So God supplies that power for our eternal life. But there are many people that really don't understand when eternal life begins. Eternal life actually begins at the very moment that you put your faith in Christ. God doesn't save you and and then say, well, have a nice life. I'll see you when you're dead. No, God gives you eternal life at the very moment that you believe. So not only do you receive spiritual life from God, but you also receive the power from God for living. So God's power also gives us, uh, God gives us the power for spiritual living. Peter says, His divine power hath given us unto us all things that pertain unto life, that was first, and unto godliness. That's the power to live for him. So spiritual life has to come first. No one knows Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit to give him spiritual life. And then there's no person that can go on living this life for Christ unless he's enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I needed to get that out of the way first. I wanted you to understand that it is a divine call. God gives the power for spiritual life. He gives the power for spiritual living. It's a divine power. And so all the things that we're going to talk about next... All of these things that Peter says you need to add to your life, the only way that you have the power to do that is that God gives it to you. You can't do it on your own. You receive no inward power that comes from within yourself. I mean, your power has to come from God to live this virtuous life. So the second thing we want to talk about today is the diligence of our calling. And this is what I'm referring to as the maintenance of our Christian life. In verse number 5, Peter says, and besides this, giving all diligence. Diligence is the maintenance. It's looking at the task of living this life for Christ and paying very close attention to the way that you carry out that task. Now, this is not, as some people say, let go and let God. A few years ago, it became very popular to use that phrase. People would say, let go and let God. And what they meant by that is that you don't have to really do anything. That God's going to do whatever it is he's going to do in your life. You just sit back. You just wait on God. You don't have to do anything. Don't pay attention. Don't be diligent about anything. Just wait on God. Let God do it all. Let go and let God. Now make no mistake about this. We do not believe that there is any work that you can do that will cause you to become a Christian. Nothing is going to save you, not works that you do. We aren't saved by keeping any kinds of sacraments. Our baptism doesn't do that. Lord's Supper won't do that. Uh, 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 keeping other things that, are, that people say you have to do, those are not things that save you. Now, those are things that you may do that prove the evidence of your salvation, but they don't save you. And it ought to be evident from point number one of this sermon that you could never do the first thing to save yourself because you can't please God because you have no spiritual life. God has to come and give you that spiritual life first. But then, when you are saved, there are things for you to do. 
You just can't sit back and you can't say, well, just let God do it all. Here, Peter shows us very clearly that diligence is required to maintain our spiritual life. And I don't mean here that you'll lose your salvation, but I mean for you to be a Christian that God wants you to be. You have to maintain the Christian life. And if you do not do these things, you will fall. Peter says in verse number 10, if you do these things, you will never fall. Now, we're going to get to that statement a little bit later, and we'll explain what that means. So what kinds of things are required? What kind of maintenance am I speaking of? Well, Peter gives us some things here in verses 5, 6, and 7. These are things that require our diligence. See, a car is a car, whether it sits in the garage or whether it drives down the highway. But a car is much more useful to you if you get in that car and you drive it down the highway to get where you're going. And the things that Peter says that you need to maintain and add to your Christian life are things that will get your spiritual car out of the garage. And it'll get you moving for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse number 5, he begins with virtue. He says, add to your faith virtue. He says, you've been saved by grace. You, you, you have this faith in Christ, and now begin to exercise it and start exercising it through virtue. But what does that mean? It simply means this. Choose right rather than wrong. Virtue is the courage to stand up for what is right. Does that seem odd that I should have to stand here today in front of Christians or that Peter should write here that we are as Christians are to choose what is morally right and we have to stand for those things? Peter was writing to persecuted Christians. They could face death for standing up for the Lord. They needed encouragement. I mean, every day they they faced death for standing for Christ, and so he writes to them to give them encouragement. But when I stand before you today, and I talk to you about having moral courage to stand up for what is right, you're not going to face what they faced. Nobody's going to come and kill you because you take a stand for Jesus Christ. That's very unlikely to happen. You don't have that kind of duress. And so when I exhort you to have moral courage to stand for what's right, you won't face what they face, and yet there are many Christians who will not stand up for what is right. Now, why why are there so many Christians that are concerned about our economy than they are about this moral quagmire that our country is moored in? A few weeks ago in our bulletin, I reprinted an article by Pastor John Piper in which he described the correctness of one-issue voting. He said, is it right for you to be a one-issue voter? And he argued that there is a moral absolute that ought to drive us to do rightly, to stand rightly. And he said one of these issues is abortion. That is a single issue that ought to steer the way that we vote. But there are many Christians who ignore that in favor of the economy. They put the moral absolute second, and they put the economy first. In other words, it's your pocketbook. It's what affects you materially. That's more important for you to do than to act righteously. Friends, let me ask you, how are we expected to stand the moral test in issues that are far less important than this? How are we going to stand the moral test when we do not have the moral rectitude to absolutely vote against murder? How are we going to to stand for God and have a virtuous life if we won't do that? He says, add to your faith virtue. Have the moral courage to stand up for what's right. There never would have been a Christian martyr 
if there weren't Christians who had virtue. Now, the second thing that you have to add to your life, the maintenance, is to learn how to live. He says, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. I don't want you to misunderstand what Peter is saying here. He's not saying that there is a certain order to all of these things and that you get one of these down right and you get that down correctly and so you move on to the next thing. When you've mastered one, then you can move on. He's not saying that at all. I mean, there's no reason at all why you can't add knowledge in the very beginning. You can start out with knowledge. Here, he's not talking about knowledge of Christ because every person who's a Christian already has knowledge of Christ. But he does mean that you find out how to live through the study of God's Word. You get your knowledge there. You learn how to act and live. What did David say? In the Psalms 119, he said, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Why is it today that there is so little concern about moral values? And why is it today that Christians don't have personal holiness? Well, I would submit to you that it's because of the lack of knowledge of God's word. You're not going to act righteously if you don't know what righteousness is. By understanding God's law, the Scripture says we identify false ways. And I do believe that the failure of American Christians today, the failure, has much to do with the failure of our pulpits. When churches steer away from God's Word, they steer away also from morality. And if you're in a church where the preacher does not stand up behind a pulpit and does not declare the unadulterated truth of God's word and declare what, what is right and what's wrong, you don't have a chance for being a virtuous Christian. The way that you get it is through God's word. The Bible is the moral compass for our lives. And so when you stop preaching the Bible, you'll lose your way. You, you don't have any morality. You lose the way. You don't understand it. And so thus we have this problem of declining morality in America. What is it? It's the result of prayer being taken out of our schools. It's the result of the Ten Commandments being taken out of public institutions. It's the result of churches who no longer preach from the Word of God. Here's the problem, friends, that the abatement of God's Word will always bring a corresponding decline in morality. Now that's true in secular life, and it's true in religious life. You learn how to live by staying in God's Word. And you don't abandon that in the church, and you don't abandon it in your home. There are some Christians who will say, well, how can I get my kids to turn out right? How can I get them to do rightly? What am I supposed to do? And you know what they do? They head down to the Christian bookstore or, or some other bookstore, and they head straight for the child psychology department. How am I going to get my kids to turn out right? And they pick up some dribble off of the shelves about some psychobabble about uh, how to to psychoanalyze your children when the real answer to all of this is to read your kids the Word of God. Not long ago, I asked one of our parents, what do you use at home to teach your children? What, What kind of materials do you use to teach your children at home? And you know the answer that came back? It was a great answer. And they pause for just a moment. I think I almost stumped them when I said that. It was kind of like, why do you ask? And the answer was, we read them the Bible. We read them the Bible. What do kids need? They need the Bible. You start reading that when they're little, 
and through God's precepts, the Word of God says, they will learn every false way. So you simply read the Bible. That used to be the methodology to teach people how to live. Well, why is it no longer? You teach people to live through the Bible. But as I said, uh, families have stopped doing that, public institutions have stopped doing it, and churches have stopped doing it. The Bible is the fuel for your Christian life. And if you stop reading the Bible, you stop staying in the Bible, you're going to be stuck in a moral traffic jam. Learn how to live. The third area of maintenance for your Christian life is to stop before you sin. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance. Temperance is a word that simply means self-control. It means to discipline yourself so that when you face temptation, that you stop. You stop before you enter into the sin. There are many directions that I could go with this today. And the one that I've decided to take today is one that you might not like. And so I'm glad the roads are back a little bit further. You may not like this. There are many vices that are available to Christian people today. I I could spend hours telling you things that you should or should not do. And as you know, if you've come to Berean very long, I've never acted like a policeman. I never tried to check and see the activities of the lives of our people. There are some people, churches, who like to major on that theme, and so the church gets involved in a mass of regulations that people have to live by. I'm not into all those kinds of things. I think that a Christian should learn himself, you should learn through the study of God's Word, how you apply the brakes in your life. A car that does not have its brakes maintained will not stop. And the discipline of your Christian life, the temperance, is when you learn when to stop. You only go so far and then you have to stop. You don't enter into that temptation. As I said, there are many directions that I could go. But the one that I want to address today is one that is a growing part of our culture and it's also a growing problem in our churches. About three years ago, we had a problem with our high school students who got involved with an internet thing called MySpace. I think most of you know what that is. Uh, Some of you may not. Some of our older members you may not know. And so if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, you just hang out for a little while because I'm going to get back to you again later when we get to the next point. But uh, I was tipped off to some things about our young people that were involved in, and they were involved in this thing called MySpace. I investigated that, and I, I didn't really know what MySpace was. The only thing that I knew about it was what I read in the papers, and I hadn't read anything good, I will tell you that. And so I began to check into that, and I I went on the Internet to see what all the fuss was about. And without reading any of the profiles of anybody that I knew, it took about two mouse clicks to discover that that whole thing is a moral cesspool. I learned from it that very quickly that it's no place for a Christian to be, even Christians with the best of intentions. It's not a good testimony It's one of those places you ought not to go. It's a place that you ought to stay away from before you enter into the temptation. Now, what I was very distressed to learn about was that, and in the time uh, since that, I've learned that there are preachers who maintain profiles on this thing called MySpace. I learned that there were adult members that maintain profiles in MySpace. And I want to tell you, folks, if you are willing to stick your toe into the cesspool 
don't be surprised if you're not soon up to your neck in the sewer. Can you use it rightly? I don't see how. I mean, if you're going to invite your friends out to dinner, you you don't ask them to meet you in a strip club. Your intentions, you think, might be great, but how can you invite your friends to a place to speak with you? How can you take them to MySpace and at the same time introduce them to all of that filth and sleaziness that's all around you? My advice is stop before you sin. When there are things that are just a mouse click away, it's very easy for you to take the bait that's in Satan's trap. Stay away from it. Somebody said, my space is not a good place for teenagers. Well, it's not a good place for adults either. Stay away from it. We lead our young people by example. That's part of the maintenance of our Christian life. I'm glad the road's back there. It's awful quiet. Fourthly today, the maintenance of your Christian life is this. Take a licking, but keep on ticking. The apostle says, add to temperance patience. Patience is another word here or can be used for perseverance. Back in the 1950s, there was a series of commercials for Timex watches. And in these advertisements, they would put Timex watches through all different kinds of endurance tests, I mean, things that you would never think to do to your own watch. There was one commercial in which John Cameron Swayze took off a Timex watch and he strapped it to a boat propeller. And then he took off in the boat, you know, just took off down through the, through the water there in, in the boat. And then when he got finished, he took the Timex watch off of that boat propeller and he held it up and he said, takes a licking, Timex takes a living, licking, but keeps on ticking. And through that series of commercials, by the end of the 1950s, two out of three watches that were sold in America were Timex watches. There are some Christians that start out in their Christian lives in a blaze of glory. They get saved and they start going and they go and they go and they go. And pretty soon they start taking shots from over here and one comes from over there. There's some problem that arises on this side and a problem arises on that side. And soon that glory, that, 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 that spastic thing that they've done, going in a blaze of glory for Christ, what happens then? It all fizzles out into a little puff of smoke. But the Word of God is teaching us that it's better for your Christian life to be like a Timex watch. It just keeps on going. It just keeps on going and keeps on going. It's not the big fizzle and the big bang that a lot of people have. They got the spirit all of a sudden, so they jump up and throw up their hands and they jab or something. That's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible's talking about a consistency of perseverance in your Christian life. It's far better for you to be that way than to have those big bangs than to turn out to be a small little fizzle. Now, I'm full of analogies today, so if you want to take this back to the car analogy, you ought to be like GMC trucks built tough to last. And if you build your life on the principles that we've already talked about, you will have a Christian life that will last. You'll be able to keep going when times get tough. And so the economy, it may be bad, but it won't get you down. The economy may cause you problems. Your health may cause you problems. But you have somebody to depend upon, and you keep that perseverance. You just keep on going when times are tough. And Paul says, or Peter rather says, this is part of the maintenance of your Christian life. 
Now, the fifth thing that he tells us, another thing to add, is to act like the Almighty. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness. He's saying, act like the Almighty. Now, a few of you husbands, you may be thinking, don't give my wife any more encouragement. She already acts like the Almighty. He's talking about adding to your patience godliness, acting like God. Now, I don't mean that you act like you're the one who's in control, but what I do mean is that you resemble God in your holiness. Peter is taking a verse out of the Old Testament and explaining, and he says this, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That means your whole manner of life. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. I want to ask you a question. When you, when you get saved, whose child are you? You're a child of God, aren't you? You're a child of God. You have that relationship. You know, there's a little boy around here that, that uh, there's no mistaking whose child he is. I'm talking about Dylan Coons. Have you seen Dylan? There's no mistaking whose child he is. You look at him, and he's got Eric written all over him. There's a definite family resemblance there. And when you become a Christian there should be a family resemblance. You should begin to look like the one that you're related to. You know, brothers and sisters often look alike. And uh, in our church, we are, we're brothers and sisters. We're a Christian family. Now, thank the Lord, physically, we don't all look alike. I'm so thankful I don't look like Dave Sharon. But, but it's wonderful here. We, we, we don't look physically alike, but we can look like our Heavenly Father. And there's to be a relationship there. Resemble him spiritually. And others around you ought to be able to notice also the family resemblance. That person just looks like, he talks like, he acts like, he goes to places, he does things that Christians do. And they say, I can see the family resemblance. Being godly is when you live a holy life that's conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. All through our Christian lives, from the very moment that we're saved, we are being conformed to be like Christ. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And so when you act like Christ, you act like the Almighty. Jesus is our Savior. He is our Lord. He's our King. He is the Almighty. And we all ought to act diligently to be like him, to look like him. Now here then is the next thing that he says to add. Maintenance in your Christian life is to be easy with everybody. Be easy with everybody. He says, to godliness add brotherly kindness. In our study of the book of Philippians on Wednesday nights, we've been in one of the greatest passages in all the Bible. This is called the kenosis of Christ. It's recorded in Philippians chapter 2. What that means is the emptying of Christ. That's when Jesus stepped down off the throne in glory, when he emptied himself, when he humbled himself to become a man. And the Bible says he went even further than that. He humbled himself to be a servant of men. Not just a man, but a servant of men. And then even yet further still, when he went to the death of the cross. That is the kenosis of Christ, the emptying of himself. In Philippians 2 verse 3, Paul wrote, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. And then after those verses, he goes into, starting at verse number 6, the kenosis of Christ, how Christ emptied himself. Now, brotherly kindness is when you treat others better than they deserve to be treated. 
Paul says that we're to have the mind of Christ. What did he do? He treated us better than we deserve to be treated. What do we deserve? Well, the Bible teaches that the only thing we really deserve is the blackness and the darkness of hell forever. But what Jesus did, he went to the cross so that we would not have to go to hell. Jesus went there and he took our punishment for us so that God could treat us better than we deserve. Now, why did he have to do that? Because God is a just God. God has a law. God has laws that we're supposed to keep, but we've broken those laws, and it's impossible for us to keep God's law perfectly. And so God cannot treat us any other way than through justice, perfect justice. And when we receive perfect justice, that means every one of us should die and go into the fires of hell because we have not kept God's law. But what Jesus came to do, he came to keep God's law perfectly and then to transfer his righteousness or his goodness to us so that God can treat us better than we deserve. That's what salvation is all about. It's about Jesus paying the penalty of our sins. And because of that, our belief in him, God treats us better than we deserve. One of the greatest Christian virtues is that we treat others better than ourselves. The scripture says, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And so our divine calling is to be kind, to be tender-hearted, forgiving, and to be diligent to treat others, not perhaps as you want to be treated, but even better than you want to be treated. Then we come to the last Christian virtue that Paul speaks of here, and this is certainly not the least of them. I think in many respects we can say this is the greatest of all Christian virtues. Charity is your choice. Charity, of course, means love. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And his reply, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Some people will say, well, you know, I've got that first one down. I love God with all my heart, my soul, and all my mind. I know what Jesus did for me. He saved me from my sins, and so therefore I love God with all my heart, my soul, and my mind. But as soon as they say that, or not long after, they get angry at someone in the church because of something that they said or something that they did. And they go to that person, and they give that person a piece of their mind. I'm going to go tell that person off. And they do it because it may be in defense of one of their children. Somebody said something maybe to hurt one of their kids. Maybe they do it because um, their, their honor, someone has besmirched their honor or something. But wait a minute, what did Jesus say here? He said, on these two commandments, on these two commandments, hang all the law on the prophets. What we have here is two things that go together. You can't hang everything on the first without hanging everything on the second. And so if you love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, you will also love others. You cannot overstep your bounds with your neighbor without overstepping your bounds with your Savior. It doesn't work that way. What is love? What is he speaking of here? And if you ask people, what is love? Well, they'll come back with, 
different answers, usually some kind of flowery language, and they'll speak about warm, fuzzy feelings and all kinds of emotions. The Bible never speaks of love in that way. Love is not an emotional feeling. Love, according to the Bible, is a diligent response to God's commandment. Love is God's highest calling. God says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And what that means is that you have a choice to obey or disobey that command. You have a choice. And when you disobey this command, your virtue is lost. Now, if love is the greatest commandment and loving your neighbor as yourself is coupled with your love for God, then if you disobey that commandment, it is impossible for you to walk worthy with God. You see, if the burden of proof is met in the highest standard, that's to love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, if the burden of proof is met in the highest standard, it's necessarily met for all lower standards. But if the burden of proof is not met in the lower standard, which may be to love your neighbor as yourself, it cannot be met in the highest standard. You understand what I'm saying? These things absolutely go together. So we have a virtuous, divine calling that demands our diligence in holiness. Now let's go very quickly, lastly today, and let's see the result of the diligence. We've been called to glory and to virtue, so what result is achieved with this? What is all this designed to do? So thirdly is the design of our calling. If you look at verse number 8, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 10. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Did you know that it's possible for you to fill up your head with all kinds of knowledge of God's word, You can memorize verses of Scripture. You can take out your theology book, get your systematic theology at one of the bookstores and sit down and read that, understand it, look up all the Scripture references. You can do all of that. But you can be a Christian that produces only withered fruit. Even after having all of that knowledge, one of my favorite fruits is tomatoes. We can argue later about whether tomatoes are fruits or vegetables, if you'd like. But one of my favorites is tomatoes. And I thank people in the church that bring me tomatoes, like Mrs. Crandall uh, is always bringing me tomatoes. And we enjoy those. It's a wonderful thing. But you know, it's possible for you to plant a tomato vine, and you can water it very carefully, put all the fertilizer that it needs, put it all around there. You can treat that plant as best as you can. But what happens if you fertilize and you fertilize and you fertilize, and you water and you water and you water that plant but you don't take care to pull up the weeds that are growing beside it. What happens to the plant? Well, the plant withers and it dies because those weeds take all the nutrients out of the soil. Everything that's intended to go into those tomatoes that you're trying to raise, the fertilizer and the water, the weeds rob all that from it. And you'll notice that the weeds always grow faster than your tomato vines. And when that happens, the fruit that's produced on the vine is a puny fruit. This is the very same thing that Peter is speaking about in your Christian life. You can fill up your head with knowledge. You can come to these services every single week. You can listen to the preaching of God's Word. You can read your Bible at home, look up all the Scriptures, do all you want to do. But if you don't take care to pull up the weeds, 
there won't be any fruit in your Christian life. This is what the Bible's talking about when it says to add these things. When you add these things, you are at the same time pulling up all of the weeds that are growing in your life. Everything that does not look like Jesus, you just pull up. You know, maybe you heard that story. I think I've used it before about the old guy that, or fellow that stopped at a, a country store and there was an old man sitting on the porch and he was whittling away. And beside him were all these little figurines. He'd made, you know, uh, cows and horses and made little wagons and things like that. At this particular time, he was sitting there and he was whittling uh, a dog. And so the man asked him, I, I don't understand how you do that. That's a great talent. How do you make that look like that? And the man said, I just cut away everything that doesn't look like a dog. That's what you have to do with your Christian life. You have to cut away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. When you add these things to your life, then the rich nutrients that he's speaking of here go straight into the fruit of what you are as a Christian. So what is God's design with these virtues? Here's God's design. To produce fruit and not failure. God's design produce fruit and not failure. If you do these things, ye shall never fall. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. So we find that Peter and Paul, they agree in their doctrine. They agree especially when we talk about God's call. They agree about God's choice in salvation. Now, in actual sequence, here's what happens. The Bible says that before the foundation of the world, God chose you. That was before time. You didn't know anything about it. Way before time, God chose you. But in time, that's when God called you to salvation. But in your actual experience, though, you realize God's choice only after you have received God's call. And you confirm that you have received God's call by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as you live this life, this Christian life for him, you go on confirming every day that that call did indeed come to you. This is the maintenance of our Christian life. In your salvation, you received a divine call. And so you need to be diligent to confirm God's call. It's God's design that your life will not end up in failure, but that your life will bear fruit for the kingdom and the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have to be together today, and we're waiting a wonderful Thanksgiving meal. But Lord, help us not to forget the things that need to be added to our lives that we might be Christians who can be a good example, a good testimony. We can lead our children rightly. We can lead others around us to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be careful to make our calling and election sure. May we live our lives every day as if we have received that divine call. And we ask you, Lord, to make us better people, better witnesses for you. Help us to love one another as we should. And may we even express that today as we fellowship together. Bless in our invitation today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.